you'll notice in your outline for your bulletin that the outline is quite long. And as I was looking at how to present Hebrews chapter 11, I, there's a lot of different ways to go through Hebrews chapter 11. I can either do the whole chapter and just talk about the idea of faith and what it looks like, or I could do two or three verses and, and spend a lot of time on each particular story. And I thought that neither of those were really the way that that fit into how I've been going through Hebrews. So I kind of split the difference and did a bunch of the chapter. And um, what I'm hoping for this morning as we go through um, first talking about what faith is and maybe, pardon me, a little bit about what it's not, that as I touch on several of these stories, that maybe you'll you'll notice one that applies to your situation in life right now. And you'll say, yeah, do you know what? That, that mention of faith by God concerning Sarah is the one that I really think applies to me today because I'll be touching on different ways that, um, that people lived out their faith in the Old Testament. And, and so I'm hoping that even if I'm going quickly, Maybe there's one character that God mentions here in Hebrews chapter 11, the first 16 verses, that you can latch on to and say, yeah, do you know what? That's, that's what I needed to understand about um, faith um, and what it looks like. And so uh, let's begin by reading Hebrews chapter 11. And I will read the first 16 verses. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned, of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, 
but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful again this morning for your word, one of the most beautiful passages um, that we can think of when we think of your word, Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. I pray that this morning that you would make it fresh in our eyes, you would make it fresh in our hearts as we look at some of these great men and women of old who trusted you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I think we need to do, we're talking about the great faith chapter, is I need to give you a definition of faith, a biblical definition of faith. It says in Hebrews 1.1 that faith is evidence, sorry, that faith is substance and evidence. Faith is substantial. The whole chapter talks about how faith is not some airy-fairy idea, but a powerful reality in the life of the believer. Faith is evidence. As we trust in the Lord and move forward in faith, we experience his provision in a way that is impossible for those without faith to experience. In our modern world, there is a supposed conflict between faith and science. You've heard, you've heard of, uh, if you've read any magazines or, or any articles that talk about faith and science, you'll see that. And prominent atheistic and agnostic scientists describe faith as illogical, unreasonable, or belief without evidence. I don't put a lot of weight in how an atheist or an agnostic defines faith. I, I don't want to allow them to define faith for me. Nothing could be further from the truth than saying that faith is illogical or unreasonable or belief without evidence. The entire scientific enterprise in the last 500 years is built upon the shoulders of devoted believers in God, most of whom were Christians. They took verses like Proverbs 25 verse 2 very seriously. What does Proverbs 25 verse 2 say? Let's have a look. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. It is a high calling to search out the way God has concealed things in his word, in his creation, that it is a glory for those to seek out. He has given us that opportunity to really look into it. And these men of old took this idea very seriously. The other thing we need to know about faith is that faith is active trust. I can't think of a better definition for that word in the Greek other than active trust. So if faith is active trust, then Christian faith is active trust 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Faith has its reasons. Over the past two centuries or so, those of us in the Western world, particularly Europe, but the United States and Canada, we have embraced a very non-biblical view of faith as a leap in the dark. Largely, and for those of you that aren't interested in historical ideas, you can tune me out for the next 60 seconds or so. But for those of you that are interested on why we see faith as a leap in the dark, you can pay close attention and look into it on your own. But largely this view comes from a philosophical orientation known as existentialism. I know that's a lot of words, but there was a, a whole river of thought um, that, that people were thinking about, and they called it existentialism, that invaded Christian thought about 200 years ago. So when the so-called Second Great Awakening joined with existentialism, Christianity, for the very first time in 1,800 years, came to be viewed as primarily emotional. One version of this union between existentialism and Christianity goes something like this. This is, this is that thinking in a nutshell. If you didn't understand all the big words, that's okay. But in a nutshell, this is that thinking. In the modern world, we know that miracles don't happen. So basic beliefs of Christianity, like a man rising from the dead, can't be true. So, to continue to embrace Christianity, we must turn our backs on the facts and take a leap of faith. But I cannot find in my Bible God commending someone to take a blind leap of faith. We'll look at that more. Now, we know these things not to be true. As Christians, there's something about that just catches us the wrong way. We know that miracles happen. We know that a man rose from the dead because miracles happen. And so why should we continue on and embrace the conclusion and say, well, I'm just going to turn my back on the evidence and just take a blind leap of faith? There's no need to do that. The final thing that I want us to understand about faith is that it is absolutely essential in the life of a Christian. Up till now, you may have gotten the idea that faith is merely intellectual, but I want you to, to be aware that faith is not a bare belief or an intellectual understanding. It is a willingness to trust in, to rely on, and to cling to. We trust in Christ. We rely on Christ. We cling to Christ in Christian faith because we know that he is alive. We'll talk a little bit more about what faith is and maybe is not in the next little while. In the second verse, the Lord begins to explain to us that faith enabled people in the past to overcome 
tremendous obstacles. So these great examples of godliness all had one thing in common, faith. That's what we call it, the great faith chapter. But these Jewish Christians, you'll know, were experiencing some degree of discouragement, some degree of things are hard and and I'm not sure how I'm going to continue to move forward. And so the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit of God, knew that these people needed to be encouraged by others that had gone through difficult things and demonstrated their faith. He needed to break them out of their discouragement by saying, look, look at the past, look at our forefathers, look at the troubles they went through, and by faith, look at the victories they were able to obtain. So he was encouraging the hearts of these poor folks that were suffering. Verse 3 in our text says that faith gives us understanding about the invisible world. I don't know about you, but I'm suspicious that you also did not see God create the universe. And I know some of you are older than I am, and I know some of you have been around for longer than I have been, but I don't think you've been around for that long. And yet we know that God created the universe by faith. We weren't there to see it, so it can't be by sight. God reveals his existence to us through his creation, through his word, and through his son. The truthfulness of all these revelations is shown to man by the Holy Spirit of God working in a humble heart. And there is no contradiction between these three revelations of God. When God tells the truth, he tells the truth. And truth never contradicts truth. Faith should never be imagined. And I use that word very, very carefully. Faith should never be imagined as something originating with us. We've all run into people or ideas, or maybe we have been these people at times, where we try to say, I need more faith. And it's, it's almost like we're trying to, to tense ourselves to, to increase this weird substance called faith within ourselves. But faith is not something that originates with us like some kind of force. So many Christians today see faith as the force in Star Wars, right? If I have a certain degree of understanding and, and I can channel that, I can, I can do these amazing, miraculous things because I have the force working within me. And we say, oh, that's ridiculous. Is it? Is it ridiculous that people think that? No, I think we've met people that believe that faith is like a force, and so we read the word faith and we think some sort, of, some sort of force that I have within me where through I can accomplish incredible things. Faith is trust that should be correctly directed toward God and his promises. It is not something where we say, I need more faith, and we look inward and say, I need this force. It's something that we direct toward God. God I want to trust you better in the future than I trust you right now. It is directed toward God. Simple, 
trust. It is not, faith is not some special substance that God gives just a few people that somehow gain some mysterious understanding. Faith is for every believer, regardless of that understanding that some people think they have that others don't. It is simple trust. And the purer that trust, the simpler that trust, the more powerful that faith is in working through you to other people. Faith is always directed toward God, not toward ourselves or others. In the same way that most of you weren't there during creation week, I think that even if you are old enough that you probably weren't there to see the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ either. Yeah, I know you're old, but you're not that old, Pete. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> it's been a while since I picked on him. It's been like, what, two weeks? So I have to do that a little bit. And yet, we know that it happened by faith. We didn't see it happen, but we know it happened. We trust in the God who cannot lie, that has revealed the truth of these events in his word, and we know them to be true. And because these events took place in a real location, at a real time in history, the more carefully we investigate the evidence for creation and the evidence for the death and resurrection of Christ, the more our faith is going to be increased because they are true. They happened. Into Abel's faith in verse 4. Right at the very beginning, with the writer's example of Abel, the writer reminds us instantly that faith is not necessarily rewarded on this earth. But God himself testifies to the righteousness of the faithful. Abel's blood still cries out to us, reminding us of the value of eternity. The story of Cain and Abel is one of the most powerful and revealing stories about the nature of man and his relationship to God in one another that has ever been Told, that has ever been written down. Something like 11 sentences. They're absolutely transformative. They reveal to us more about ourselves and our relationship to God and our relationship to one another than just about any other story I can think of. And so God, looking at Abel's faith, caused it to be written down here in Hebrews. Abel's faith was demonstrated by obedience. From his parents, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel would have clearly understood that the price of sin is death. Mom, Dad, where did you get those skins? Well, son, when we sinned in the garden, we covered ourselves with plants, and God said, that's never going to do. And God took the life of innocent animals and gave us the skin of those animals. The price, my son, of sin 
is death. They would have known that, clearly. And so, when it came time for each of them to give an offering, Abel took the best of his flock, and Cain, in direct disobedience, offered the fruit of the ground. Well, that's what Adam and Eve had done. They sewed themselves aprons, it says, of plants, fig leaves. And God had come along and said, no, that's not how it's done. We don't just cover our shame. Our sin and our shame are dealt with, with the death of the innocent. And so Cain disobeyed deliberately. And this is what I learned from that particular story. Good intentions never compensate for simple obedience in matters of faith. Good intentions never compensate for simple obedience in matters of faith. Abel's story is told because he simply obeyed. That's an act of faith worthy of recording in Hebrews 11. What about Enoch's faith? It says that Enoch walked with God. The Old Testament never uses the word faith to describe Enoch. As a matter of fact, the word faith is only used two times in the Old Testament. Interesting thought. There's other, there's other um, sort of derivatives of faith. There's faithful and faithfulness, most of them referring to the character of God. But the word faith is only used twice, and it's not used to describe Enoch. And yet when the great faith chapter comes along, God records Enoch. And it simply says of Enoch, he walked with God. He walked with God. For us today, to walk with God through the days he has granted us is an act of faith. To walk with God through the days he has granted us is an act of faith. The writer to the Hebrews knows that only a man of faith can enjoy close communion with God. Anyone with this close fellowship like Enoch had with God must obviously please God. And in pleasing God, Enoch fulfilled the purpose for which every man was created. It is easy for many of us in a world that gives us an overwhelming number of opportunities to forget that your primary purpose for which you were created is to please God. There's so many other things we think we might do. I was visiting with um, a couple of teenagers and I asked them, I asked them this question, and I'm not sure where one of them is spiritually, but I asked them this question, what do you think it is that causes people your age, say teenagers, what do you think it is that causes them to seem to not care as to whether God exists or whether God, do God doesn't exist. She thought about that for a bit and she said, well, I think it's a couple of things, but I think one of them is, is that we are so bombarded by information, particularly internet, where every single person that is putting information out there claims that their information is the true information, that it's, 
it, it, the response to it is, how can I possibly know what's true? And so since, since I can't possibly know between all of these options what's true, I just, I'm just going to tell myself I don't care. I reject them all. And I thought, that, that's an interesting idea. That's a good first step for those of us that have an opportunity to work with young people to begin to cause them to care about the beginning of, of, of looking into faith, which would be the existence of God. If they can get into their minds that they were created for a purpose, and that purpose is to please God, it filters out all of the other truth claims. This is my purpose. What it looks like depends on the individual, but this is the purpose of every man, to bring glory to God. The basic faith required of any who seeks God is to believe that he exists and to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Verse 6. To believe that he exists. How could you possibly begin to try to please God if you don't think he exists? So number one, to believe that he exists and to believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The writer to the Hebrews doesn't say that it's difficult to please God without faith. He says that it is impossible to please God without faith. This is one of the verses that encourages me, at least, to continue to study Christian apologetics or evidences for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity. Many people, particularly young people, have built roadblocks in their thinking that prevent them from believing in the existence of God. They can't even get past step one. How would you expect them to get to step two, which is to believe that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him if they can't even get to step one? God is real. So in many cases, we need to start this pre-evangelism. What roadblock prevents you from thinking that God is real and that he's there. And people have created all sorts of roadblocks. And they use, and they use these roadblocks as excuses not to believe. It's easier not to. As believers, we can begin to dismantle the ideas that people cling to as an excuse to dismiss the pursuit of truth. And by God's grace, that pursuit of truth would lead all the way to Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. What is the reward that God offers? God is a rewarder of those that seek him. What is the reward? God himself. If you misread the passage and say, well, I'm struggling financially, so I'm going to believe God exists and then that, he, that he's going to fill my wallet. Then you've missed the whole point of the passage. God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him by giving them his own self. The person of Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit. There's your reward and it is eternal. Can you imagine how much greater that reward is than, say, not having a runny nose? 
not having as much money as you would like, not being as healthy and vibrant as you once were. Those were the days that I could master. The pace was slow and I was faster. God offers you himself as reward. You believe that he is. And you go further and see in Christ that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And he says, that's my basic requirement of you. I gave you Christ. Here he is. Here's your reward. It is eternal. It goes on to talk about Noah's faith. Noah's faith was shown in doing what God told him to do regarding the flood. When God told Noah it was going to rain, well, let me put it this way. Let's suppose that you're living at this time, and rather than Noah being around, you're Noah's neighbor, and God comes to you and says, it's going to rain. And I fear that some of us would say, okay, it may rain. I'm going to build an umbrella. Because our faith, in compared to what Noah did, maybe hasn't pushed as hard as it needed to. Maybe we don't know this one who says when it's going to rain, he doesn't mean a 20-minute shower to refresh the flowers out front. When God said it's going to rain, it was going to rain. Noah didn't build an umbrella. God is not asking us to step out with tippy toes of faith. He's asking us to step out in bold faith. Build an ark, not an umbrella. When God says it's going to rain, build an ark. And I'm using that idea metaphorically. What is it that God is driving you towards? And you're saying, God, I'm willing to put my tippy toe of faith into where you're going just in case things go south. Then I still have one foot on solid ground and I can take that step back. Well, in this passage here in Hebrews, God's saying, look at the type of faith Noah had. God says it's going to rain, build an ark. Noah obeyed. Real faith will always do something. Real faith will always do something. Faith is not merely trust. Faith is active trust. It's not what we say that demonstrates what we believe. It's what we do. The book of James repeats this idea over and over again. If you are a person that has placed his faith, his complete trust in Christ for this life and the next, your life will show it. James says that's just a given. He goes so far as to say, if the type of faith that you think you have does not result in you living a life that shows trust in the person and work of Christ, then that faith is dead and useless. That is not salvific faith. How is it that Noah condemned the world? 
I think it's quite simple. Did he stand outside while his boys were behind him building the ark, saying, you're all going to die, you're all going to die? God is going to judge you all and you're all going to die? I think that this passage says that Noah condemned the world by this simple act, doing what God asked him to do. There's a story of a fellow that went golfing. Of course, it's a golfing story. Went golfing with uh, Billy Graham. This guy wasn't a believer. So finally, after those three hours were done, he comes off the golf course and he's slamming his clubs and ah, just, and one of his friends noticed, his friend who was a Christian noticed him slamming his clubs around. He's like, what's, what's the matter? Ah, oh, I just played a round of 18 holes with Billy Graham and all he did was condemn me the whole time. Really? What did he say? He was surprised. Like he knew that Billy Graham would give him the gospel maybe, but to force this idea down his throat. Really? What did he say? Ah, he didn't really say anything. So often we think we have to condemn the world with loud voices and black and white judgments. There is a time to speak up. But by the very life we live, the decisions we make in faith, trusting God moment by moment, the world is condemned by the Christian. What about Abraham's, Abraham's obedience? Abraham stepped out in faith, going to the place God promised him. A wonderful benefit of faith is the adventure that God has for you. Now, I'm particularly going to speak to young men and boys right now. The rest of you are allowed to listen. But I'm particularly going to speak to young men and boys right now. God has designed you to be truly vibrant when you leave the comfort of your home for the adventures of faith. I'm afraid that many well-meaning mothers prevent their sons from experiencing the unknown in an adventure of faith. Mothers are designed in a different way. Mothers are designed to have empathy and protect, which is great for the first six months. It's absolutely necessary to the life of that child in the first six months, right, Sarah? That's what mothers are designed for. But a man that has been insulated from adventure when God has called him forward into the unknown is a man that is stifled, unhappy, discouraged, and useless. Young men, God has designed you with a desire to pursue life's adventure. He has given you a gift, something that grips you, not something that you've gripped, something that grips you and compels you to step out in faith, not knowing where the road may lead. That's when you're alive. That's when you're most alive. My advice, do it. Step out in faith. Society, today's society has tried to emasculate young men by telling them that they should not be daring, that they should not be aggressive, and that they should not pursue the adventure that life has for them. Don't listen to society. God called Abraham out of his father's tent. Imagine this. I've talked about 30-year-old men living in their parents' basement, playing Xbox, waiting for the phone to ring so that they can have a job. 
And I think, well, that's ridiculous. Abraham was 80, and God called him from where? His father's tent. Abraham, you're 80. Do you think maybe it's time to leave home? The other thing is it's not too late, 80-year-olds. Some of you are like, I've got two years to get it going. (laughs) And what did Abraham do? He went on the adventure of a lifetime. Mothers, don't stifle your sons by discouraging them from experiencing appropriate danger. Wives, support your husbands as they step out in faith, even if it gives you some anxiety. Because men are designed to do that. Now, obviously, there is some risk involved. A young man begins to pursue adventure for the sake of adventure rather than a goal-oriented faith. They may find, if they do this, that they have wandered aimlessly and they may find themselves far from God. This is one of the reasons it is much more often that boys wander away from the faith of their parents, breaking their parents' hearts. Up to 65% of regular church attendees are female. You say 65, that's close to 50. No, let's think about it. That means only 35% of people that go to church regularly are male. Remember we talked about earlier, existentialism and the Great Awakening, that for the first time in 1,800 years, church became primarily emotional? Do you think that may have something to do with the fact that young boys and men take a step back? Men, what do you do when women cry? You walk away. It's like, I don't know how to deal with you crying. The best thing I can do for you is go over there. Because whatever I say is going to make it worse. We don't know how to deal with emotionalism. It's not a fit for us. Women and girls are far more likely to feel comfortable with the stability of a church environment. To some degree, maybe to a high degree, churches have failed their young men by emphasizing the emotional, and we have failed to give them a chance of adventure. Something to think about. Food for thought. What about Abraham's sojourning life of faith? Abraham lived as a sojourner in the land God promised. Dwelt there is the translation of the ancient Greek word peroikos, describing a resident foreigner, one who lives somewhere but doesn't have permanent status there. A resident foreigner or a sojourner is easy to spot. Their mannerisms, their entertainment, their citizenship, their language, and their friends all suggest that that person is a foreigner. If someone is the same in all these areas as the native people, they are no longer sojourners, they are permanent residents. Christians shouldn't live as if they are permanent residents on the planet Earth. I always enjoy visiting with people that are from other places. The differences are compelling. But unfortunately, some Christians, they read that verse 
that says, when God says, you are a peculiar people. And we strive to make ourselves peculiar. And I mean really peculiar. And it makes us unapproachable. And that's not, by the way, what peculiar means there. We ought to be resident foreigners that live in such a way that people feel drawn to know what the difference is. And it says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived in tents instead of houses. They looked forward to a better city, the city which has foundations, not like their tents. Their tents didn't have foundations. They could pull up and move. But they were looking forward to a place that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I'll have to go quickly. I'm running out of time. Verses 11 and 12. Sarah's faith was not perfect. When she first heard that God was going to give her a child, I was going to bring up Genesis 18, 1 to 15. We'll have to skip through it. But take the time to read it. When she first heard it, so these men came and said, your wife Sarah is going to bear a child in her own age. She, it, she laughed. She giggled. She, she thought, that's ridiculous. I wasn't able to conceive children when I was young. There's no way I can conceive children now that I'm old, let alone this bag of bones that I'm married to. But three chapters later, in Genesis 21, verses 5 and 6, it says that she laughed again because God gave her a son. Now she was laughing in faith. The pure joy... God kept his promise. God gave me what every woman longs for. In case you hadn't noticed, God didn't record her failures in Hebrews, only her triumphs. God did not remember her failures against her. Faith comes down to judging that God is faithful and able to keep his promises. It was this faith that enabled Sarah to receive strength, to conceive seed. Faith didn't give Sarah strength. God gave Sarah strength. But Sarah received it. God, I trust you. I trust you. And so God gave her the strength. Because of the faith of Sarah and Abraham, Millions of descendants were born. Their faith had an impact, as yours can, on more lives than you ever could have imagined, than they ever imagined. Finally, what about the faith that Abraham and Sarah and what it teaches us? The promise of the coming Messiah was made to Abraham and Sarah, and they believed the promise. Yet they died having never received it, only seeing it in faith. God promised that I would bear a son. I bore a son. It seemed impossible. God made it happen. God said that someday he's sending a Messiah. It's going to happen. Living by faith is meaningful when we remember that this world is not our home. It is meaningful when we remember that on this side of eternity, not everything is settled and not every wrong is righted. That is why we seek a homeland and a better heavenly country. Finally, to close, for those of us courageous enough to believe, and it takes courage, God is not ashamed to be called our God.
for he has prepared a city for us. Let's pray.